Hey all, and welcome to ChapterWise, where I take public domain or other authorized use works of fiction and narrate them for you one chapter at a time. If you like what you hear, please follow my channel. If you love what you hear, please consider supporting my channel. I try to upload new chapters three or four times a week. The Memoirs of Fanny Hill by John Cleland Originally published in 1749 Whilst I was thus making these laudable dispositions and whispering to myself a kind of tacit vow of incontinency, enters Mr. H., the consequence of what I had been doing deepened yet the glow of my cheeks, flushed with the warmth of the late action which, joined to the piquant air of my deshabille, drew from Mr. H. a compliment on my looks, which he was proceeding to bask the sincerity of with proofs, and that with so brisk an action as made me tremble for fear of a discovery from the condition of those parts were left in from their late severe handling, the orifice dilated and inflamed the lips swollen with their uncommon distension, the ringlets pressed down crushed and uncurled with the overflowing moisture that had wet everything round it, in short, the different feel and state of things would hardly have passed upon one of Mr. H.'s nicety and experience unaccounted for, but by the real cause. But here the woman saved me. I pretended a violent disorder of my head and a feverish heat that indisposed me too much to receive his embraces. He gave in to this and good-naturedly desisted. Soon after, an old lady coming in made a third, very apropos for the confusion I was in, and Mr. H., after bidding me take care of myself and recommending me to my repose, left me much at ease and relieved by his absence. In the close of the evening, I took care to have prepared for me a warm bath of aromatic and sweet herbs, in which, having fully laved and solaced myself, I came out voluptuously refreshed in body and spirit. The next morning, waking pretty early after a night's perfect rest and composure, it was not without some dread and uneasiness that I thought of what innovation that tender, soft system of mine might have sustained from the shock of a machine so sized for its destruction. Struck with this apprehension, I scarce dared to carry my hand thither to inform myself of the state and posture of things, but I was soon agreeably cured of my fears— the silky hair that covered round the borders, now smoothed and repruned, had resumed its wonted curl and trimness. The fleshy pouting lips that had stood the brunt of the engagement were no longer swollen or moisture-drenched, and neither they nor the passage into which they opened that had suffered so great a dilation betrayed any the least alteration, outwardly or inwardly, to the most curious research— notwithstanding the laxity that naturally follows the warm bath. This continuation of that grateful stricture which is in us, to the men, the very jet of their pleasure, I owed, it seems, to a happy habit of body, juicy, plump, and furnished, towards the texture of those parts with a fullness of soft springy flesh that yielded sufficiently, as it does, to almost any distension soon recovers itself so as to retighten that strict compression of its mantlings and folds, which forms the sides of the passage wherewith it so tenderly embraces and closely clips any foreign body introduced into it, 
such as my exploring finger then was. Finding then everything in due tone and order, I remember my fears, only to make a jest of them to myself. And now, palpably mistress of any size of man, and triumphing in my double achievement of pleasure and revenge, I abandoned myself entirely to the ideas of all the delight I had swam in. I lay stretching out, glowingly alive all over, and tossing with burning impatience for the renewal of joys that had sinned but in a sweet excess— nor did I lose my longing, for about ten in the morning, according to expectation, Will, my new humble sweetheart, came with a message from his master, Mr. H., to know how I did. I had taken care to send my maid on an errand into the city that I was sure would take up time enough, and from the people of the house I had nothing to fear, as they were plain good sort of folks, and wise enough to mind no more other people's business than they could well help. All dispositions then made, not forgetting that of lying in bed to receive him when he was entered at the door of my chamber, a latch that I governed by a wire descended and secured it. I could not but observe that my young minion was as much spruced out as could be expected from one in his condition, a desire of pleasing that could not be indifferent to me, since it proved that I pleased him which, I assure you, was now a point I was not above having in view. His hair trimly dressed, clean linen, and above all, a hale, ruddy, wholesome country look, made him out as pretty a piece of woman's meat as you could see. And I should have thought any one much out of taste that could not have made a hearty meal of such a morsel as nature seemed to have designed for the highest diet of pleasure. And why should I here suppress the delight I received from this amiable creature in remarking each artless look, each motion of pure, indissembled nature, betrayed by his wanton eyes, or showing transparently the glow and suffusion of blood through his fresh, clear skin, while Stephen, his sturdy, rustic pressure wanted not their peculiar charm? Oh, but say you, this was a young fellow of too low a rank of life to deserve so great a display. Maybe so. But was my condition strictly considered one jot more exalted? Or had I really been much above him? Did not his capacity of giving such exquisite pleasure sufficiently raise and ennoble him, to me at least? Let who would... For me, cherish respect and reward the painters, the statuaries, the musicians' art, in proportion to the delight taken in them. But at my age, and with my taste for pleasure, a taste strongly constitutional to me, the talent of pleasing, with which nature has endowed a handsome person, formed to me the greatest of all merits— compared to which the vulgar prejudices in favor of titles, dignities, honors, and the like, held a very low rank indeed. Nor perhaps would the beauties of the body be so much affected to be held cheap were they in their nature to be bought and delivered. But for me, whose natural philosophy all resided in the favorite center of sense, and who was ruled by its powerful instinct in taking pleasure by its right handle— I could scarce have made a choice more to my purpose. 
Mr. H.'s loftier qualifications of birth, fortune, and sense laid me under a sort of subjection and constraint that were far from making harmony in the concert of love. Nor had he, perhaps, thought me worth softening that superiority to. But with this lad I was more on the level which love delights in. We may say what we please, but those we can be the easiest and freest with are even those we like not to say love the best. With this stripling, all whose art of love was the action of it, I could without check of awe or restraint give a loose to Jay and execute every scheme of dalliance my fond fancy might put me on, in which he was, in every sense, a most exquisite companion— and now my great pleasure lay in humouring all the petulances, all the wanton frolic of a raw novice just fledged, and keen on the burning scent of his game, but unbroken to the sport. And, to carry on the figure, who could better read the wood than he, or stand fairer for the heart of the hunt? He advanced then to my bedside, and whilst he faltered out his message, I could observe his colour rise and his eyes lighten with joy in seeing me in a situation as favourable to his loosest wishes as if he had bespoke the play. I smiled and put out my hand towards him, which he kneeled down to a politeness taught him by love alone, that greater master of it, and greedily kissed— after exchanging a few confused questions and answers, I asked him if he would come to bed to me, for the little time I could venture to detain him. This was just asking a person dying with hunger to feast upon the dish on earth the most to his palate. Accordingly, without further reflection, his clothes were off in an instant. When blushing still more at this new liberty, he got under the bedclothes I held up to receive him and was now in bed with a woman for the first time in his life. Here began the usual tender preliminaries, as delicious, perhaps, as the crowning act of enjoyment itself, which they often beget an impatience of that makes pleasure destructive of itself. By hurrying on the final period and closing that scene of bliss in which the actors are generally too well pleased with their parts not to wish them an eternity of duration. When we had sufficiently graduated our advances towards the main point, by toying, kissing, clipping, feeling my breasts now round and plump, feeling that part of me I might call a furnace mouth, from the prodigious intense heat his fiery touches had rekindled there, my young sportsman, emboldened by the very freedom he could wish, wantonly takes my hand and carries it to that enormous machine of his, that stood with a stiffness, a hardness, an upward bend of erection, and which together with it bottom dependence— the inestimable balls of ladies' jewels formed a grand show-out of goods indeed. Then its dimensions, mocking either grasp or span, almost renewed my terrors. I could not conceive how or by what means I could take or put such a bulk out of sight. I stroked it gently, on which the mutinous rouge seemed to swell and gather a new degree of fierceness and insolence, so that finding it grew not to be trifled with any longer, I prepared for rubbers in good earnest. Slipping then a pillow under me that I might give him the fairest play, I guided officiously with my hands 
this furious battering ram, whose ruby head presenting nearest the resemblance of a heart, I applied to its proper mark, which lay as finely elevated as we could wish. My hips being borne up and my thighs at their utmost extension, the gleamy warmth that shot from it made him feel that he was at the mouth of the indraught and driving for right, the powerfully divided lips of that pleasure-thirsty channel received him. He hesitated a little, then, settled well in the passage, he takes his way up the straits of it with a difficulty nothing more than pleasing— widening as he went so as to distend and smooth each soft furrow, our pleasure increasing deliciously in proportion to our points of mutual touch increased in that so vital part of me which I had now taken him, all driven and completely sheathed, and which, crammed as it was, stretched, splitting, ripe, gave it so gratefully straight an accommodation, so strict a fold, a suction so fierce, that gave and took unutterable delight. We had now reached the closest point of union, but when he beckoned to come on the fiercer, as if I had been actuated by a fear of losing him, in the height of my fury I twisted my legs round his naked loins, the flesh of which, so firm, so springy to the touch, quivered again under the pressure, and now I had him every way encircled and begirt, and having drawn him home to me I kept him fast there as if I had sought to unite bodies with him at that point. This bred a pause of action, a pleasure stop. Whilst that delicate glutton, my nether mouth, as full as it could hold, kept palpitating with exquisite relish, the morsel that so deliciously engorged it. But nature could not long endure a pleasure that it so highly provoked without satisfying it. Pursuing then its darling end, the battery recommenced with redoubled exertion, nor lay I inactive on my side, but encouraging him with all the impetuosity of motion I was mistress of, the downy cloth of our meeting mount was now of real use to break the violence of the tilt. And soon indeed, the high-wrought agitation, the sweet urgency of this to-and-fro friction raised the titillation on me to its height, so that finding myself on the point of going and loath to leave the tender partner of my joys behind me, I employed all the forwarding motions and arts my experience suggested to me to promote his keeping me company to our journey's end. I not only then tightened the pleasure girth round my restless inmate by a secret spring of friction and compression that obeys the will in those parts, but stole my hand softly to the store-bag of nature's prime sweets, which is so pleasingly attached to its conduit pipe, from which we receive them. Their feeling, and most gently indeed, squeezing those tender globular reservoirs, the magic touch took instant effect, quickened, and brought on upon the spur the symptoms of that sweet agony, the melting moment of disillusion, when pleasure dies by pleasure, and the mysterious engine of it overcomes the titillation it has raised in those parts, by plying them with the stream of a warm liquid that in itself the highest of all titillations, and which they thirstily express and draw in like the hot-natured leech which to cool itself tenaciously extracts all the moisture within its sphere of execution. Chiming then to me with exquisite consent, as I melted away, his oily balsamic injection mixing deliciously with the sluices in flow from me, sheathed and blunted all the stings of pleasure, 
whilst a voluptuous languor possessed and still maintained us motionless and fast locked in one another's arms. Alas, that these delights should be no longer lived, for now the point of pleasure, unedged by enjoyment and all the brisk sensations flattened upon us, resigned us up to the cool cares of insipid life. Disengaging myself then from his embrace, I made him sensible of the reasons there were for his present leaving me, on which, though reluctantly, he put on his clothes, with as little expedition, however, as he could help, wantonly interrupting himself, between whiles, with kisses, touches, and embraces I could not refuse myself to. Yet he happily returned to his master before he was missed. But, at taking leave, I forced him for he had sentiments enough to refuse it, to receive money enough to buy a silver watch, that great article of subaltern finery, which he at length accepted of as a remembrance he was carefully to preserve of my affections. And here, madam, I ought, perhaps, to make you an apology for this minute detail of things that dwelt so strongly upon my memory after so deep an impression but besides that this intrigue bred one great revolution in my life, which historical truth requires I should not sink from you, may I not presume that so exalted a pleasure ought not to be ungratefully forgotten, or suppressed by me, because I found it in a character in low life, where, by the by, it is oftener met with purer and more unsophisticated than among the false, ridiculous refinements with which the great suffer themselves to be so grossly cheated by their pride. The great, than whom, there exist few amongst those they call the vulgar who are more ignorant of, or who cultivate less, the art of living than they do. They, I say, for whoever mistake things the most foreign to the nature of pleasure itself, whose capital favorite object is enjoyment of beauty, wherever that rare invaluable gift is found without distinction of birth or station. As love never had, so now revenge had no longer any share in my commerce in this handsome youth— the sole pleasures of enjoyment were now the link I held to him by, for though nature had done such great matters for him in his outward form, and especially in that superb piece of furniture she had so liberally enriched him with, though he was thus qualified to give the senses their richest feast, still there was something more wanting to create in me and constitute the passion of love. Yet Will had very good qualities, too, gentle, tractable, and above all, grateful. Silentious, even to a fault, he spoke at any time very little, but made it up emphatically with action. And to do him justice, he never gave me the least reason to complain, either of any tendency to encroach upon me for the liberties I allowed him, or of his indiscretion in blabbing them. There is, then a fatality in love, or have loved him I must, for he was really a treasure, a bit for the bone bush of a duchess, and to say the truth my liking for him was so extreme that it was distinguishing very nicely to deny that I loved him. My happiness, however, with him did not last, 
but found an end from my own imprudent neglect, after having taken even superfluous precautions against a discovery our success in repeated meetings emboldened me to omit the barely necessary ones. About a month after our first intercourse, one fatal morning, the season Mr. H. rarely or never visited me in, I was in my closet where my toilette stood in nothing but my shift, a bedgown, and under-petticoat. Will was with me, and both ever too well disposed to bulk an opportunity— for my part, a whim, a wanton toy had just taken me, and I had challenged my man to execute it on the spot, who hesitated not to comply with my humor. I was set in the armchair, my shift and petticoat up, my thighs widespread and mounted over the arms of the chair, presenting the fairest mark to Will's drawn weapon, which he stood in act to plunge into me, when having neglected to secure the chamber door and that of the closet standing ajar— Mr. H. stole in upon us, before either of us was aware, and saw us precisely in these convicting attitudes. I gave a great scream and dropped my petticoat. The thunderstruck lad stood trembling and pale, waiting his sentence of death. Mr. H. looked sometimes at one, sometimes at the other, with a mixture of indignation and scorn, and without saying a word, spun upon his heel and went out. As confused as I was, I heard him very distinctly turn the key and lock the chamber door upon us, so that there was no escape but through the dining-room where he himself was walking about with distempered strides, stamping in a great chaff, and doubtless debating what he would do with us. In the meantime poor William was frightened out of his senses, and as much need as I had of spirits myself, I was obliged to employ them all to keep his a little up. The misfortune I had now brought upon him endeared him the more to me, and I could have joyfully suffered any punishment he had not shared in. I watered, plentifully with my tears, the face of the frightened youth who sat, not having strength to stand, as cold and as lifeless as a statue. Presently Mr. H. comes in to us again, and made us go before him into the dining-room, trembling and dreading the issue. Mr. H. sat down on a chair, whilst we stood like criminals under examination, and beginning with me, asked me with an even, firm tone of voice, neither soft nor severe, but cruelly indifferent, what I could say for myself, for having abused him in so unworthy a manner, with his own servant, too, and how he had deserved this of me. Without adding to the guilt of my infidelity that of an audacious defense of it, in the old style of a common kept miss, my answer was modest, and often interrupted by my tears, in substance as follows. That I never had a single thought of wronging him, which was true, till I had seen him taking the last liberties with my servant wench. Here he colored prodigiously and that my resentment at that, which I was overawed from giving vent to by complaints or explanations with him, had driven me to a course that I did not pretend to justify, but that as to the young man, he was entirely faultless, 
for that, in the view of making him the instrument of my revenge, I had downright seduced him to what he had done, and therefore hoped whatever he determined about me, he would distinguish between the guilty and the innocent, and that, for the rest, I was entirely at his mercy. Mr. H., on hearing what I said, hung his head a little, but instantly recovering himself, he said to me, as near as I can retain, to the following purpose. Madam, I owe shame to myself, and confess you have fairly turned the tables upon me. It is not with one of your cast of breeding and sentiments that I allow you so much reason on your side as great difference of the provocations. Be it sufficient that I should enter into a discussion of the very to have changed my resolution, in consideration of what you reproach me with. And I own, too, that your clearing that rascal there is fair and honest in you. Renew with you I cannot. The affront is too gross. I give you a week's warning to get out of these lodgings. Whatever I have given you remains to you and as I never intend to see you more, the landlord will pay you fifty pieces on my account, with which, and every debt paid, I hope you will own I do not leave you in a worse condition than what I took you up in, or that you deserve of me. Blame yourself only that it is no better. Then, without giving me time to reply, he addressed himself to the young fellow. For you, Spark, I shall, for your father's sake, take care of you, the town is no place for such an easy fool as thou art, and tomorrow you shall set out under the charge of one of my men, well recommended, in my name, to your father, not to let you return and be spoiled here. At these words he went out, after my vainly attempting to stop him by throwing myself at his feet. He shook me off, though he seemed greatly moved, too and took Will away with him, who, I dare swear, thought himself very cheaply off. That's it for today's chapter, everyone. Thanks for coming along on the ride. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please consider supporting my channel. And as always, whatever platform you're listening on, just know that I deeply appreciate the time you spend with me here. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. See you next time.